0: On the Life of Saint Martin by Sulpicius Severus. Preface to Desiderius. Severus to his dearest brother Desiderius sendeth greeting. I had determined, my like minded brother, to keep private and confine within the walls of my own house the little treatise which I had written concerning the life of Saint Martin. I did so as I am not gifted with much talent, and shrank from the criticisms of the world, lest, as I think will be the case, my somewhat unpolished style should displease my readers, and I should be deemed highly worthy of general reprehension for having too boldly laid hold of a subject which ought to have been reserved for truly eloquent writers. But I have not been able to refuse your request again and again presented." for what could there be which I would not grant, in deference to your love, even at the expense of my own modesty? However, I have submitted the work to you, on the sure understanding that you will reveal it to no other, having received your promise to that effect. Nevertheless I have my fears that you will become the means of its publication to the world, and I well know that once issued it can never be recalled. If this shall happen, and you come to know that it is read by some others, you will, I trust, kindly ask the readers to attend to the facts related, rather than the language in which they are set forth. You will beg them not to be offended if the style chances unpleasantly to affect their ears, because the kingdom of God consists not of eloquence, but faith. Let them also bear in mind that salvation was preached to the world not by orators, but by fishermen, though God certainly could have adopted the other course, if, if had it been advantageous. For my part, indeed, when I first applied my mind to writing what follows, because I thought it disgraceful that the excellences of so great a man should remain concealed, I resolved with myself not to feel ashamed on account of solecisms of language. This I did because I had never attained any great knowledge of such things, or, if I had formerly some taste of studies of the kind, I had lost the whole of that through having neglected these matters for so long a course of time. But, after all, that I may not have in future to adopt such an irksome mode of self-defence, The best way will be that the book should be published, if you think right, with the author's name suppressed. In order that this may be done, kindly erase the title which the book bears on its front, so that the page may be silent. And, what is quite enough, let the book proclaim its subject matter while it tells nothing of the author. CHAPTER One. REASONS FOR WRITING THE LIFE OF ST. MARTIN Most men, being vainly devoted to the pursuit of worldly glory, have, as they imagined, acquired a memorial of their own names from this source, viz. devoting their pens to the embellishment of the lives of famous men. This course, although it did not secure for them a lasting reputation, still has undoubtedly brought them some fulfillment of the hope they cherished. It has done so both by preserving their own memory, though to no purpose, and because, through their having presented to the world the examples of great men, no small emulation has been excited in the bosoms of their readers. Yet, notwithstanding these things, their labors have in no degree borne upon the blessed and never-ending life to which we look forward. For what has a glory destined to perish with the world profited those men themselves who have written on mere secular matters? Or what benefit has posterity derived from reading of Hector as a warrior, or Socrates as an expounder of philosophy? There can be no profit in such things, since it is not only folly to imitate the persons referred to, but absolute madness not to assail them with the utmost severity. For in truth, those persons who estimate human life only by present actions, have consigned their hopes to fables, and their souls to the tomb. In fact, they gave themselves up to be perpetuated simply in the memory of mortals, whereas it is the duty of man rather to seek after eternal life than an eternal memorial. And that, not by writing, or fighting, or philosophizing, but by living a pious, holy and religious life. This erroneous conduct of mankind, being enshrined in literature, has prevailed to such an extent that it has found many who have been emulous either of the vain philosophy or the foolish excellence which has been celebrated. For this reason I think I will accomplish something well worth the necessary pains if I write the life of a most holy man which shall serve in future as an example to others, by which indeed the readers shall be roused to the pursuit of true knowledge and heavenly warfare and divine virtue. In so doing, we have regard also to our own advantage, so that we may look for not a vain remembrance among men, but an eternal reward from God. For although we ourselves have not lived in such a manner that we can serve for an example to others, nevertheless we have made it our endeavor that he should not remain unknown who was a man worthy of imitation. I shall therefore set about writing the life of St. Martin, and shall narrate both what he did previous to his episcopate, and what he performed as a bishop at the same time I cannot hope to set forth all that he was or did those excellences of which he alone was conscious are completely unknown because as he did not seek for honor from men he desired as much as he could accomplish it that his virtues should be concealed and even of those which had become known to us we have omitted a great number because we have judged it enough if only the more striking and eminent should be recorded. At the same time, I had it in the interests of readers to see to it that no undue amount of instances being set before them should make them weary of the subject. But I implore those who are to read what follows to give full faith to the things narrated, and to believe that I have written nothing of which I had not certain knowledge and evidence I should, in fact, have preferred to be silent, rather than to narrate things which are false. End of Chapter 1 The Life of St. Martin of Tours by Sulpicius Severus Chapter 2 Military Service of St. Martin Martin then was born at Sabaria in Pannonia, Sarwar, but was brought up at Tissenum, Pavia, which is situated in Italy. His parents were, according to the judgments of the world, of no mean rank, but were heathens. His father was at first simply a soldier, but afterwards a military tribune. He himself, in his youth, following military pursuits, was enrolled in the Imperial Guard, first under Constantine, and then under Julian Caesar. This, however, was not done of his own free will. For almost from his earliest years, the holy infancy of the illustrious boy aspired, rather, to the service of God. For when he was of the age of ten years, he betook himself against the wish of his parents to the church, and begged that he might become a catechumen. Soon afterwards, becoming in a wonderful manner, completely devoted to the service of God, When he was twelve years old, he desired to enter on the life of a hermit, and he would have followed up that desire with the necessary vows had not his as yet too youthful age prevented. His mind, however, being always engaged on matters pertaining to the monasteries or the church, already meditated in his boyish years what he afterwards, as a professed servant of Christ, fulfilled." but when an edict was issued by the ruling powers in the state, that the sons of veterans should be enrolled for military service, and he, on the information furnished by his father, who looked with an evil eye on his blessed actions, having been seized and put in chains, when he was fifteen years old, was compelled to take the military oath, then showed himself content with only one servant as his attendant, And even to his servant, changing places as it were, he often acted as though, while really master, he had been inferior, to such a degree that, for the most part, he drew off his servant's boots and cleaned them with his own hand, while they took their meals together, the real master, however, generally acting the part of servant. During nearly three years before his baptism, he was engaged in the profession of arms, but he kept completely free from those vices in which that class of men become too frequently involved. He showed exceeding kindness towards his fellow soldiers, and held them in wonderful affection, while his patience and humility surpassed what seemed possible to human nature. There is no need to praise the self-denial which he displayed. It was so great that even at that date He was regarded not so much as being a soldier, as a monk. By all these qualities, he had so endeared himself to the whole body of his comrades, that they esteemed him while they marvelously loved him. Although not yet made a new creature in Christ, he, by his good works, acted the part of a candidate for baptism. This he did, for instance, by aiding those who were in trouble by furnishing assistance to the wretched, by supporting the needy, by clothing the naked, while he reserved nothing for himself from his military pay except what was necessary for his daily sustenance. Even then, far from being a senseless hearer of the gospel, he so far complied with its precepts as to take no thought for the morrow. Chapter 3 Christ appears to St. Martin. Accordingly, at a certain period, when he had nothing except his arms and his simple military dress, in the middle of winter, a winter which had shown itself more severe than ordinary, so that the extreme cold was proving fatal to many, he happened to meet at the gate of the city of Amiens, a poor man destitute of clothing, HE WAS entreating THOSE THAT PASSED BY TO HAVE COMPASSION UPON HIM, BUT ALL PASSED THE WRETCHED MAN WITHOUT NOTICE. WHEN MARTIN, THAT MAN FULL OF GOD, RECOGNIZED THAT A BEING TO WHOM OTHERS SHOWED NO PITY, WAS IN THAT RESPECT LEFT TO HIM. YET WHAT SHOULD HE DO? HE HAD NOTHING EXCEPT THE CLOAK IN WHICH HE WAS CLAD, FOR HE HAD ALREADY PARTED WITH THE REST OF HIS GARMENTS FOR SIMILAR PURPOSES. Taking, therefore, his sword with which he was girt, he divided his cloak into two equal parts, and gave one part to the poor man, while he again clothed himself with the remainder. Upon this some of the bystanders laughed, because he was now an unsightly object, and stood out as but partly dressed. Many, however, who were of sounder understanding, Groaned deeply because they themselves had done nothing similar. They especially felt this, because being possessed of more than Martin, they could have clothed the poor man without reducing themselves to nakedness. In the following night, when Martin had resigned himself to sleep, he had a vision of Christ arrayed in that part of his cloak with which he had clothed the poor man he contemplated the Lord with the greatest attention, and was told to own as his the robe which he had given. Ere long, he heard Jesus saying with a clear voice to the multitude of angels standing round, Martin, who was still but a catechumen, clothed me with this robe. The Lord, truly mindful of his own words, who had said when on earth, INASMUCH AS YOU HAVE DONE THESE THINGS TO ONE OF THE LEAST OF THESE, YOU HAVE DONE THEM UNTO ME, DECLARED THAT HE HIMSELF HAD BEEN CLOTHED IN THAT POOR MAN, AND TO CONFIRM THE TESTIMONY HE BORE TO SO GOOD A DEED, HE CONDESCENDED TO SHOW HIM HIMSELF IN THAT VERY DRESS WHICH THE POOR MAN HAD RECEIVED. AFTER THIS VISION, THE SAINTED MAN WAS NOT PUFFED UP WITH HUMAN GLORY, But acknowledging the goodness of God in what had been done, and being now of the age of twenty years, he hastened to receive baptism. He did not, however, all at once retire from military service, yielding to the entreaties of his tribune, whom he admitted to be his familiar tent companion. For the tribune promised that after the period of his office had expired, he too would retire from the world. Martin, kept back by the expectation of this event, continued, although but in name, to act the part of the soldier for nearly two years after he had received baptism. Chapter four Martin retires from military service. In the meantime, as the barbarians were rushing within the two divisions of Gaul, Julian Caesar bringing an army together at the city of the Valgiones, began to distribute a donative to the soldiers. As was the custom in such a case, they were called forward, one by one, until it came to the turn of Martin. Then, indeed, judging it a suitable opportunity for seeking his discharge, for he did not think that it would be proper for him if he were not to continue in the service to receive a donative, He said to Caesar, Hitherto I have served you as a soldier. Allow me now to become a soldier to God. Let the man who is to serve thee receive thy donative. I am the soldier of Christ. It is not lawful for me to fight. Then truly the tyrant stormed on hearing such words, declaring that from fear of the battle, which was to take place on the morrow, and not from any religious feeling, Martin withdrew from the service. But Martin, full of courage, yea, all the more resolute from the danger that had been set before him, exclaims, If this conduct of mine is ascribed to cowardice and not to faith, I will take my stand unarmed before the line of battle tomorrow, and in the name of the Lord Jesus, protected by the sign of the cross and not by shield or helmet, I will safely penetrate the ranks of the enemy." He is ordered, therefore, to be thrust back into prison, determined on proving his words true by exposing himself unarmed to the barbarians. But on the following day, the enemy sent ambassadors to treat about peace, and surrendered both themselves and all their possessions. In these circumstances, Who can doubt that this victory was due to the saintly man? It was granted him that he should not be sent unarmed to the fight. And although the good Lord could have preserved his own soldier, even amid the swords and darts of the enemy, yet that his blessed eyes might not be pained by witnessing the death of others, he removed all necessity for fighting. For Christ did not require to secure any other victory in behalf of his own soldier, than that the enemy being subdued without bloodshed, no one should suffer death. Chapter 5 Martin Converts a Robber to the Faith From that time quitting military service, Martin earnestly sought after the society of Hilarius, bishop of the city Pictava, poitiers, whose faith in the things of God was then regarded as of high renown, and in universal esteem. For some time, Martin made his abode with him. Now this same Hilarius, having instituted him in the office of the diaconate, endeavored still more closely to attach him to himself, and to bind him by leading him to take part in divine service. But when he constantly refused, crying out that he was unworthy, Hilarius, as being a man of deep penetration, perceived that he could only be constrained in this way, if he should lay that sort of office upon him, in discharging which there should seem to be a kind of injury done him. He therefore appointed him to be an exorcist. Martin did not refuse this appointment from the fear that he might seem to have looked down upon it as somewhat humble. Not long after this, he was warned in a dream that he should visit his native land, and more particularly his parents, who were still involved in heathenism, with a regard for their religious interests. He set forth in accordance with the expressed wish of the Holy Hilarius, and after being abjured by him with many prayers and tears, that he would in due time return. According to report, Martin entered on that journey in a melancholy frame of mind, after calling the brethren to witness that many sufferings lay before him. The result fully justified this prediction. For first of all, having followed some devious paths among the Alps, he fell into the hands of robbers, and when one of them lifted up his axe and poised it above Martin's head, another of them met with his right hand the blow as it fell. Nevertheless, having had his hands bound behind his back, he was handed over to one of them to be guarded and stripped. The robber, having led him to a private place apart from the rest, began to inquire of him who he was. Upon this Martin replied that he was a Christian, The robber next asked him whether he was afraid. Then indeed Martin most courageously replied that he never before had felt so safe, because he knew that the mercy of the Lord would be especially present with him in the midst of trials. He added that he grieved rather for the man in whose hands he was, because by living a life of robbery he was showing himself unworthy of the mercy of Christ. And then... Entering on a discourse concerning evangelical truth, he preached the word of God to the robber. Why should I delay stating the result? The robber believed, and after expressing his respect for Martin, he restored him to the way, entreating him to pray the Lord for him. That same robber was afterwards seen leading a religious life, so that in fact the narrative I have given above is based upon an account furnished by himself. CHAPTER six: THE DEVIL THROWS HIMSELF IN THE WAY OF MARTIN. Martin then, having gone on from there after he had passed Milan, the devil met him in the road, having assumed the form of a man. The devil first asked him what place he was going. Martin having answered him to the effect that he was minded to go wherever the Lord called him, the devil said to him, Wherever you go, or whatever you attempt, the devil will resist you. Then Martin, replying to him in the prophetical word, said, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Upon this his enemy immediately vanished from sight. And thus, as he had intended in his heart and mind, he set free his mother from the errors of heathenism, although his father continued to cleave to its evils. However, he saved many by his example. After this, when the Arian heresy had spread through the whole world and was especially powerful in Illyria, and when he, almost single-handed, was fighting most strenuously against the treachery of the priests, and had been subjected to many punishments, for he was publicly scourged, and at last was compelled to leave the city. Again betaking himself to Italy, and having found the church in the two divisions of Gaul in a distracted condition, through the departure also of the holy Hilarius, whom the violence of the heretics had driven into exile, Martin established a monastery for himself at Milan, there too, Auxentius, the originator and leader of the Arians, bitterly persecuted him, and after he had assailed him with many injuries, violently expelled him from the city. Thinking therefore that it was necessary to yield to circumstances, he withdrew to the island Galinaria, Alenga, with a certain presbyter as his companion a man of distinguished excellences here he subsisted for some time on the roots of plants and while doing so he took for food hellebore which is as people say a poisonous kind of grass but when he perceived the strength of the poison increasing within him and death now nearly at hand he warded off the imminent danger by means of prayer and immediately all his pains were put to flight. And not long after, having discovered that, through penitence on the part of the king, permission to return had been granted to Holy Hilarius, he made an effort to meet him at Rome, and with this view set out for that city. CHAPTER Seven. Martin restores a catechumen to life As Hilarius had already gone away, so Martin followed in his footsteps, and having been most joyously welcomed by him, he established for himself a monastery not far from the town. At this time a certain catechumen joined him, being desirous of being instructed in the doctrines and habits of the Most Holy Man. But after the lapse only of a few days, the catechumen, seized with a languor, began to suffer from a violent fever. It so happened that Martin had then left home, and having remained away three days, he found on his return that life had departed from the catechumen, and so suddenly had death occurred that he had left this world without receiving baptism. The body, being laid out in public, was being honoured by the last sad offices on the part of the mourning brethren when martin hurries up to him them with tears and lamentations but then laying hold as it were of the holy spirit with the whole powers of his mind he orders the others to quit the cell in which the body was lying and bolting the door he stretches himself at full length on the dead limbs of the departed brother having given himself for some time to earnest prayer and perceiving by means of the spirit of god that power was present, he then rose up for a little, and gazing upon the countenance of the deceased, he waited without misgiving for the result of his prayer and of the mercy of the Lord. And scarcely had the space of two hours elapsed when he saw the dead man begin to move a little in all his members, and to tremble with his eyes opened for the practice of sight. Then, indeed, turning to the Lord with a loud voice and giving thanks, he filled the cell with his shouts. Hearing the noise, those who had been standing at the door immediately rush inside. And truly a marvelous spectacle met them, for they beheld the man alive whom they formerly had left dead. Thus being restored to life, and having immediately obtained baptism, he lived for many years afterwards. AND HE WAS THE FIRST WHO OFFERED HIMSELF TO US, BOTH AS A SUBJECT THAT HAD EXPERIENCED THE VIRTUES OF MARTIN, AND AS A WITNESS TO THEIR EXISTENCE. THE SAME MAN WAS wont TO RELATE THAT WHEN HE LEFT THE BODY, HE WAS BROUGHT BEFORE THE TRIBUNAL OF THE JUDGE, AND BEING ASSIGNED TO GLOOMY REGIONS AND VULGAR CROWDS, HE RECEIVED A SEVERE SENTENCE. THEN, HOWEVER, HE ADDED, It was suggested by two angels of the judge that he was the man for whom Martin was praying, and that on this account he was ordered to be led back by the same angels and given up to Martin and restored to his former life. From this time forward the name of the sainted man became illustrious, so that as being reckoned holy by all, he was also deemed powerful and truly apostolical. CHAPTER Eight. MARTIN RESTORES ONE THAT HAD BEEN STRANGLED. Not long after these events, while Martin was passing by the estate of a certain man named Lupicinus, who was held in high esteem according to the judgment of the world, he was received with shouting and the lamentations of a wailing crowd. Having in an anxious state of mind gone up to that multitude and inquired what such weeping meant, he was told that one of the slaves of the family had put an end to his life by hanging. Hearing this, Martin entered the cell in which the body was lying, and excluding all the multitude, he stretched himself upon the body, and spent some little time in prayer. Ere long, the deceased, with life beaming in his countenance, and with his drooping eyes fixed on Martin's face, is roused. And, with a gentle effort attempting to rise, he laid hold of the right hand of the saintly man, and by this means stood upon his feet. In this manner, while the whole multitude looked on, he walked along with Martin to the porch of the house. End of Chapter 8 On the Life of St. Martin of Tours By Sulpicius Severus Part 2 CHAPTER Nine: HIGH ESTEEM IN WHICH MARTIN WAS HELD Nearly about the same time, Martin was called upon to undertake the episcopate of the church at Caeseradonum, Tours. But when he could not easily be drawn forth from his monastery, a certain Ruricius, one of the citizens, pretending that his wife was ill, and casting himself down at on his knees, prevailed on him to go forth. Multitudes of the citizens having previously been posted by the road on which he traveled, he is thus under a kind of guard escorted to the city. An incredible number of people, not only from that town, but also from the neighboring cities, had in a wonderful manner assembled to give their votes. There was but one wish among all, there were the same prayers and there was the same fixed opinion to the effect that Martin was most worthy of the episcopate, and that the church would be happy with such a priest. A few persons, however, and among these some of the bishops, who had been summoned to appoint a chief priest, were impiously offering resistance, asserting, forsooth, that Martin's person was contemptible, that he was unworthy of the episcopate, that he was a man despicable in countenance, that his clothing was mean, and his hair disgusting. This madness of theirs was ridiculed by the people of sounder judgment, inasmuch as such objectors only proclaimed the illustrious character of the man, while they sought to slander him. Nor truly was it allowed them to do anything else than what the people, following the divine will, desired to be accomplished. Among the bishops, however, who had been present, a certain one of the name Defensor is said to have specially offered opposition, and on this account it was observed that he was at that time severely censured in the reading from the Prophets. For, when it so happened that the lector, whose duty it was to read in public that day, being blocked out by the people, failed to appear, the officials falling into confusion while they waited for him who never came, one of those standing by, laying hold of the psalter, seized upon the first verse which presented itself to him. Now the psalm ran thus, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise because of thine enemies, that thou might destroy the enemy and the avenger, Defensor. On these words being read, a crowd was raised by the people, and the opposite party were confounded. It was believed that this psalm had been chosen by divine ordination, that Defensor, Avenger, might hear a testimony to his own work, because the praise of the Lord was perfected out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, in the case of Martin, while the enemy was at the same time both pointed out and destroyed. CHAPTER X. MARTIN AS BISHOP OF TOURS And now, having entered on the Episcopal office, it is beyond my power fully to set forth how Martin distinguished himself in the discharge of its duties. For he remained with the utmost constancy the same as he had been before. There was the same humility in his heart, and the same homeliness in his garments. Full alike of dignity and courtesy, he kept up the position of a bishop properly, yet in such a way as not to lay aside the objects and virtues of a monk. Accordingly, he made use for some time of the cell connected with the church, but afterwards, when he found it impossible to tolerate the disturbance caused by the numbers of those visiting it, he established a monastery for himself about two miles outside the city. This spot was so secret and retired that he enjoyed in it the solitude of a hermit, for on one side it was surrounded by a precipitous rock of a lofty mountain, while the river Loire had shut in the rest of the plain by a bay extending back for a little distance, and the place could only be approached by one path, and that a very narrow passage. Here then he possessed a cell constructed of wood. Many also of the brethren had in the same manner fashioned retreats for themselves, but most of them had formed these out of the rock of the overhanging mountain, hollowed into caves. There were altogether eighty disciples, who were being disciplined after the example of the saintly master. No one there had anything which was called his own. All things were possessed in common. It was not allowed either to buy or to sell anything, as is the custom among most monks. No art was practiced there except that of transcribers, and even this was assigned to the brethren of younger years, while the elders spent their time in prayer. Rarely did any one of them go beyond the cell unless when they assembled at the place of prayer. They all took their food together after the hour of fasting was passed. No one used wine except when illness compelled them to do so. Most of them were clothed in garments of camel's hair. Any dress approaching to softness was there deemed criminal, and this must be thought the more remarkable, because many among them were such as are deemed of noble rank. These, though far differently brought up, had forced themselves down to this degree of humility and patient endurance, and we have seen numbers of these afterwards made bishops. For what city or church would there be that would not desire to have its priests from among those in the monastery of Martin? Chapter 11 Martin demolishes an altar consecrated to a robber. But let me proceed to a description of other excellences which Martin displayed as a bishop. There was, not far from the town, a place very close to the monastery, which a false human opinion had consecrated on the supposition that some martyrs had been buried together there. For it was also believed that an altar had been placed there by former bishops. But Martin, not inclined to give a hasty belief to things uncertain, often asked from those who were his elders, whether among the priests or clerics, that the name of the martyr, or the time when he suffered, should be made known to him, he did so, he said, because he had great scruples on these points, inasmuch as no steady tradition respecting them had come down from antiquity. Having therefore for a time kept away from the place, by no means wishing to lessen the religious veneration with which it was regarded, because he was as yet uncertain, but at the same time not lending his authority to the opinion of the multitude, lest a mere superstition should obtain a firmer footing. HE ONE DAY WENT OUT TO THE PLACE, TAKING A FEW BRETHREN WITH HIM AS COMPANIONS. THERE, STANDING ABOVE THE VERY SEPULCHER, MARTIN PRAYED TO THE LORD THAT HE WOULD REVEAL WHO THE MAN IN QUESTION WAS, AND WHAT WAS HIS CHARACTER OR DESERT. NEXT, TURNING TO THE LEFT-HAND SIDE, HE SEES, STANDING VERY NEAR, A SHADE OF A MEAN AND CRUEL APPEARANCE. MARTIN COMMANDS HIM TO TELL HIS NAME AND CHARACTER. Upon this, the Shade declares his name and confesses his guilt. He says that he had been a robber, and that he was beheaded on account of his crimes, that he had been honored simply by an error of the multitude, that he had nothing in common with the martyrs, since glory was their portion, while punishment exacted its penalties from him. Those who stood by heard, in a wonderful way, the voice of the Speaker but they beheld no person. Then Martin made known what he had seen, and ordered the altar which had been there to be removed, and thus he delivered the people from the error of that superstition. CHAPTER Twelve. Martin Causes the Bearers of a Dead Body to Stop. Now it came to pass, some time after the above, that while Martin was going on a journey, he met the body of a certain heathen, which was being carried to the tomb with superstitious funeral rites. Perceiving from a distance the crowd that was approaching, and being ignorant as to what was going on, he stood still for a little while. For there was a distance of nearly half a mile between him and the crowd, so that it was difficult for him to discover what the spectacle he beheld really was. Nevertheless, because he saw that it was a rustic gathering, and when the linen clothes spread over the body were blown about by the action of the wind, he believed that some profane rites of sacrifice were being performed. This thought occurred to him, because it was the custom of the Gallic rustics in their wretched folly to carry about through the fields the images of demons veiled with a white covering lifting up, therefore, the sign of the cross opposite to them, he commanded the crowd not to move from the place where they were, and to set down the burden. Upon this, the miserable creatures might have been seen at first to become stiff like rocks. Next, as they endeavored with every possible effort to move forward, but were not able to take a step farther, they began to whirl themselves about in the most ridiculous fashion, until not able any longer to sustain the weight they set down the dead body thunderstruck and gazing in bewilderment at each other as not knowing what had happened to them they remained sunk in silent thought but when the saintly man discovered that they were simply a band of peasants celebrating funeral rites and not sacrifices to the gods again raising his hand he gave them the power of going away of lifting up the body thus he both compelled them to stand when he pleased and permitted them permitted them to depart when he thought good chapter 13 Martin escapes from a falling pine tree again when in a certain village he had demolished a very ancient temple and had set about cutting down a pine tree which stood close to the temple the chief priest of that place and a crowd of other heathens began to oppose him. And these people, though under the influence of the Lord had been quiet while the temple was being overthrown, Could not they could not al- patiently allow the tree to be cut down. Martin carefully instructed them that there was nothing sacred in the trunk of a tree, and urged them rather to honor God, whom he himself served. He added that there was a moral necessity why that tree should be cut down, because it had been dedicated to a demon. Then one of them who was bolder than the others says, If you have any trust in your God, whom you say you worship, we ourselves will cut down this tree, and be at your part to receive it when falling, for if, as you declare, your Lord is with you, you will escape all injury. Then Martin, courageously trusting in the Lord, promises that he would do what had been asked. Upon this all that crowd of heathen agreed to the condition named, for they held the loss of their tree a small matter if they only got the enemy of their religion buried beneath its fall. Accordingly, since that pine-tree was hanging over in one direction, so that there was no doubt to what side it would fall on being cut, Martin, having been bound, is, in accordance with the decision of these pagans, placed in that spot where, as no one doubted, the tree was about to fall. They began therefore to cut down their own tree with great glee and joyfulness, while there was at some distance a great multitude of wandering spectators. And now the pine tree began to totter, and to threaten its own ruin by falling. The monks at a distance grew pale, and terrified by the danger coming ever nearer, had lost all hope and confidence, expecting only the death of Martin. But he, trusting in the Lord and waiting courageously, when now the falling pine had uttered its expiring groan while it was now falling, while it was just rushing upon him, simply holding up his hand against it, he put in its way the sign of salvation. Then, indeed, after the manner of a top, spinning top, one might have thought it driven back. It swept round to the opposite side, to such a degree that it almost crushed the rustics, who had taken their places there in what was deemed a safe spot. Then truly, a shout being raised to heaven, the heathen were amazed by the miracle, while the monks wept for joy and the name of Christ was in common extolled by all. The well-known result was that on that day salvation came to that region, for there was hardly one of that immense multitude of heathens who did not express a desire for the imposition of hands, and abandoning his impious errors made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. Certainly before the times of Martin, very few, Nay, almost none in those regions had received the name of Christ. But through his virtues and example, that name has prevailed to such an extent, that now there is no place thereabouts which is not filled either with very crowded churches or monasteries. For wherever he destroyed heathen temples, there he used immediately to build either churches or monasteries. CHAPTER Fourteen. "'Martin destroys heathen temples and altars. "'Nor did he show less eminence about the same time "'in other transactions of a like kind. "'For, having in a certain village set fire "'to a very ancient and celebrated temple, "'the circle of flames was carried by the action of the wind "'upon a house which was very close to, "'yea, connected with, the temple.' When Martin perceived this, he climbed by rapid ascent to the roof of the house, presenting himself in front of the advancing flames. Then, indeed, might the fire have been seen thrust back in a wonderful manner against the force of the wind, so that there appeared a sort of conflict of the two elements fighting together. Thus, by the influence of Martin, the fire only acted in the place where it was ordered to do so. But! In a village which was named Leprosum, when he too wished to overthrow a temple which had acquired great wealth through the superstitious ideas entertained of its sanctity, a multitude of the heathen resisted him, to such a degree that he was driven back, not without bodily injury. He therefore withdrew to a place in the vicinity, and there, for three days, clothed in a covering made of Cilician goat's hair— and ashes fasting and praying the whole time he besought the Lord that as he he had not been able to overthrow that temple by human effort divine power might be exerted to destroy it then two angels with spears and shields after the manner of heavenly warriors suddenly presented themselves to him saying that they were sent by the Lord to put to flight the rustic multitude and to furnish protection to martin lest while the temple was being destroyed any one should offer resistance they told him therefore to return and complete the blessed work which he had begun accordingly martin returned to the village and while the crowds of heathen looked on in perfect quiet as he raised the pagan temple even to the foundations he also reduced all the altars and images to dust At this sight the Rustics, when they perceived that they had been so astounded and terrified by an intervention of the divine will, that they might not be found fighting against the bishop, almost all believed in the Lord Jesus. They then began to cry out openly, and to confess that the God of Martin ought to be worshipped, and that the idols should be despised, which were not able to help them. Chapter 15 Martin offers his neck to an assassin. I shall also relate what took place in the village of the Ajui. When Martin was there overthrowing a temple, a multitude of rustic heathen rushed upon him in a frenzy of rage, and when one of them, bolder than the rest, made an attack on him with a drawn sword, Martin, throwing back his cloak, offered his bare neck to the assassin nor did the heathen delay to strike but in the very act of lifting up his right arm he fell to the ground on his back and being overwhelmed by the fear of god he entreated for pardon not unlike this was that other event which happened to martin that when a certain man had resolved to wound him with a knife as he was destroying some idols at the very moment of fetching the blow the weapon was struck out of his hands and disappeared. Very frequently, too, when the pagans were addressing him to the effect that he would not overthrow their temples, he so soothed and conciliated the minds of the heathen by his holy discourse, that, the light of the truth having been revealed to them, they themselves overthrew their own temples. End of chapter 15 On the life of St. Martin by Sulpicius Severus. Part 3. Chapter 16. Cures Affected by St. Martin Moreover, the gift of accomplishing cures was so largely possessed by Martin that scarcely any sick person came to him for assistance without being at once restored to health. This will clearly appear from the following example. A certain girl at Treves was so completely prostrated by a terrible paralysis, that for a long time she had been quite unable to make use of her body for any purpose, and being as it were already dead, only the smallest breath of life seemed still to remain in her. Her afflicted relatives were standing by, expecting nothing but her death, when it was suddenly announced that Martin had come to that city. When the father of the girl found that such was the case, he ran to make a request in behalf of his all but lifeless child. It happened that Martin had already entered the church. There, while the people were looking on, and in the presence of many other bishops, the old man, uttering a cry of grief, embraced the saint's knees and said, My daughter is dying of a miserable kind of infirmity, and what is more dreadful than death itself? She is now alive only in the spirit, her flesh being already dead before the time. I beseech thee to go to her and give her thy blessing, for I believe that through you she will be restored to health. Martin, troubled by such an address, was bewildered and shrank back, saying that this was a matter not in his own hands, that the old man was mistaken in the judgment he had formed, and that he was not worthy to be the instrument through whom the Lord should make a display of his power. The father, in tears, persevered in still more earnestly pressing the case, and entreated Martin to visit the dying girl. At last, constrained by the bishop standing by to go as requested, he went down to the home of the girl. An immense crowd was waiting at the doors to see what the servant of the Lord would do. And first, betaking himself to his familiar weapons in affairs of that kind, he cast himself down on the ground and prayed. Then, gazing earnestly upon the ailing girl, he requests that oil should be given him. after he had blessed and received this, he poured the powerful sacred liquid into the mouth of the girl, and immediately her voice returned to her. Then, gradually, through contact with him, her limbs began one by one to recover life, till at last, in the presence of the people, she arose with firm steps. CHAPTER Seventeen: MARTIN CASTS OUT SEVERAL DEVILS At the same time, the servant of one Tetradius, a man of proconsular rank, having been laid hold of by a demon— was tormented with the most miserable results martin therefore having been asked to lay his hands on him ordered the servant to be brought to him but the evil spirit could in no way be brought forth from the cell in which he was he showed himself so fearful with ferocious teeth to those who attempted to go near then tetradius throws himself at the feet of the saintly man imploring that he himself would go down to the house in which the possessed of the devil was kept. But Martin then declared that he could not visit the house of an unconverted heathen, for Tetradius at that time was still involved in the errors of heathenism. Tetradius, therefore, pledges his word that if the demon were driven out of the boy, he would become a Christian, Martin, then, laying his hand upon the boy, cast the evil spirit out of him. On seeing this, Tetradius believed in the Lord Jesus and immediately became a catechumen, while not long after he was baptized. And he always regarded Martin with extraordinary affection as having been the author of his salvation. About the same time, having entered the dwelling of a certain householder in the same town he stopped short at the very threshold and said that he perceived a horrible demon in the courtyard of the house when martin ordered it to to depart it laid hold of a certain member of the family who was staying in the inner part of the house and the poor wretch began at once to rage with his teeth and to lacerate whomsoever he met the house was thrown into disorder The family was in confusion, and the people present took to flight. Martin threw himself in the way of the frenzied creature, and first of all commanded him to stand still. But when he continued to gnash with his teeth, and with gaping mouth was threatening to bite, Martin inserted his finger into his mouth, and said, "'If you possess any power, devour these!' But then, as if red-hot iron had entered his jaws, drawing his teeth far away, he took care not to touch the fingers of the saintly man. And when he was compelled by punishments and tortures to flee out of the possessed body, while he had no power of escaping by the mouth, he was cast out by means of a deflection of the belly, leaving disgusting traces behind him. CHAPTER Eighteen, MARTIN PERFORMS VARIOUS MIRACLES In the meantime, as a sudden report had troubled the city as to the movement and inroad of the barbarians, Martin orders a possessed person to be set before him, and commanded him to declare whether this message was true or not. Then he confessed that there were sixteen demons who had spread this report among the people, in order that by the fear thus excited Martin might have to flee from the city, but that in fact nothing was less in the minds of the barbarians than to make any inroad. When the unclean spirit thus acknowledged these things in the midst of the church, the city was set free from the fear and tumult which had at the time been felt. At Paris again, when Martin was entering the gate of the city, with large crowds attending him he gave a kiss to a leper of miserable appearance while all shuddered at seeing him do so and Martin blessed him with the result that he was instantly cleansed from all his misery on the following day the man appearing in the church with a healthy skin he gave thanks for the soundness of body which he had recovered this fact too ought not to be passed over in silence that threads from Martin's garment, or such as had been plucked from the goat-hair sackcloth which he wore, wrought frequent miracles upon those who were sick. For by either being tied round the fingers or placed around the neck, they very often drove away diseases from the afflicted. Chapter 19 A Letter of Martin Affects a Cure Further, Arboreus, an ex-prefect, and a man of a very holy and faithful character, while his daughter was in agony from the burning fever of a quartan ague, malaria, inserted in the bosom of the girl, at the very paroxysm of the heat, a letter of Martin which happened to have been brought to him, and immediately the fever was dispelled. This event had such an influence upon Arboreus that he at once consecrated the girl to God, and devoted her to perpetual virginity then proceeding to martin he presented the girl to him as an obvious living example of his power of working miracles inasmuch as she had been cured by him though absent and he would not suffer her to be consecrated by any other than martin through his placing upon her the dress characteristic of vowed virginity Paulinus, too, a man who was afterwards to furnish a striking example of the age, having begun suf- to suffer grievously in one of his eyes, and when a pretty thick skin had grown over it and had already covered up its pupil, Martin touched his eye with a painter's brush, and all pain being removed, thus restored it to its former soundness. He himself also, when by a certain accident, he had fallen out of an upper room, and, tumbling down a broken, uneven stair, had received many wounds, as he lay in his cell at the point of death and was tortured with grievous sufferings, he saw in the night an angel appear to him who washed his wounds and applied healing ointment to the bruised members of his body. As the effect of this, he found himself on the morrow restored to soundness of health, so that he was not thought to have suffered any harm. But, because it would be tedious to go through everything of this kind, let these examples suffice as a few out of a multitude. And let it be enough that we do not, in striking cases of miraculous interposition, detract from the truth, while, having so many to choose from, we avoid exciting weariness in the reader." Chapter 20. How Martin Acted Toward the Emperor Maximus. And here to insert some smaller matters among things so great, although such is the nature of our times, in which all things have fallen into decay and corruption, it is almost a preeminent virtue for priestly firmness not to have yielded to royal flattery. When a number of bishops from various parts had assembled to the Emperor Maximus, a man of fierce character, and at that time elated with the victory he had won in the civil wars, and when the disgraceful flattery of all around the emperor was generally remarked, while the priestly dignity had with degenerate submissiveness taken a second place to the royal retinue, in Martin alone apostolic authority continued to assert itself. For even if he had to make suit to the sovereign for some things, he commanded rather than entreated him. And although often invited, he kept away from his entertainments, saying that he could not take a place at the table of one who out of two emperors had deprived one of his kingdom and the other of his life. At last, when Maximus maintained that he had not of his own accord assumed the sovereignty, but that he had simply defended by arms the necessary requirements of the empire, regard to which had been imposed upon him by the soldiers, according to the divine appointment, and that the favour of God did not seem wanting to him who by an event so seemingly incredible had secured the victory, adding to that the statement that none of his adversaries had been slain except in the open field of battle. At length, Martin, overcome either by his reasoning or his entreaties, came to the royal banquet. The king was wonderfully pleased because he had gained this point. Moreover, there were guests present who had been invited as if to a festival, men of the highest and most illustrious rank. The prefect, who was also consul, named Avodius, one of the most righteous men that ever lived, two courtiers possessed of the greatest power, the brother and uncle of the king. While between these two, the priest of Martin had taken his place. But he himself occupied a seat which was set quite close to the king. About the middle of the banquet, according to custom, one of the servants presented a goblet to the king. He orders it rather to be given to the very holy bishop. "'expecting and hoping that he should then receive the cup from his right hand. "'But Martin, when he had drunk, handed the goblet to his own priest, "'as thinking no one worthier to drink next to himself, "'and holding that it would not be right for him to prefer either the king to hims- himself "'or those who were next to the king to the priest. "'And the emperor, as well as all those who were then present, admired this conduct so much,' that this very thing, by which they had been undervalued, gave them pleasure. The report then ran through the whole palace that Martin had done at the king's dinner what no bishop had dared to do at the banquets of the lowest judges. And Martin predicted to this same Maximus long before, that if he went into Italy, to which he then desired to go, waging war against the Emperor Valentinianus, it would come to pass that he should know he would indeed be victorious in the first attack, but would perish a short time afterwards. And we have seen that this did indeed take place, for on his first arrival Valentinianus had to betake himself to flight, but recovering his strength about a year afterwards, Maximus was taken and slain by him within the walls of Aquileia. CHAPTER Twenty One. Martin has to do with both angels and devils. It is also well known that angels were very often seen by him, so that they spoke in turns with him in set speech. As to the devil, Martin held him so visible and ever under the power of his eyes, that whether he kept himself in his proper form, or changed himself into different shapes of spiritual wickedness, He was perceived by Martin under whatever guise he appeared. The devil knew well that he could not escape discovery, and therefore frequently heaped insults upon Martin, being unable to beguile him by trickery. On one occasion the devil, holding in his hand the bloody horn of an ox, rushed into Martin's cell with great noise, and holding out to him his bloody right hand, while at the same time he exulted in the crime he had committed said where O Martin is thy power I have just slain one of your people then Martin assembled the brethren and related to him what the devil had disclosed while he ordered them carefully to search the several cells in order to discover who had been visited with this calamity they report that no one of the monks was missing but that one peasant hired by them had gone to the forest to bring home wood in his wagon. Upon hearing this, Martin instructs some of them to go and meet him. On their doing so, the man was found almost dead, at no great distance from the monastery. Nevertheless, although just drawing his last breath, he made known to the brethren the cause of his wound and death. He said that while he was drawing tighter the thongs which had got loose on the oxen yoked together, one of the oxen, throwing his head free, had wounded him with his horn in the groin. And not long after the man expired. You see with what judgment of the Lord this power was given to the devil. This was a marvellous feature in Martin, that not only on this occasion to which I have specially referred. But on many occasions of the same kind in fact as often as such things occurred he perceived them long beforehand and disclosed the things which had been revealed to him to the brethren chapter 22 Martin preaches repentance even to the devil now the devil while he tried to impose upon the holy man by a thousand injurious arts often thrust himself upon him in a visible form, but in very various shapes, for sometimes he presented himself to his view changed into the person of Jupiter, often into that of Mercury and Minerva. Often, too, were heard words of reproach, in which the crowd of demons assailed Martin with scurrilous expressions. But knowing that all were false and groundless, he was not affected by the charges brought against him. Moreover, some of the brethren bore witness that they had heard a demon reproaching Martin in abusive terms, and asking why he had taken back on their subsequent repentance certain of the brethren who had some time previously lost their baptism by falling into various errors. The demon set forth the crimes of each of them, but they added that Martin, resisting the devil firmly, answered him that past sins are cleansed away by the leading of a better life, and that through the mercy of God those are to be absolved from their sins who have given up their evil ways. The devil, saying in opposition to this, that such guilty men as those referred to did not come within the pale of pardon, and that no mercy was extended by the Lord to those who had once fallen away, Martin is said to have cried out in words to the following effect, if you yourself wretched being would but desist from attacking mankind and even at this period when the day of judgment is at hand would only repent of your deeds I with a true confidence in the Lord would promise you the mercy of Christ oh what a holy boldness with respect to the loving kindness of the Lord in which although he could not assert authority He nevertheless showed the feelings dwelling within him. And since our discourse has here sprung up concerning the devil and his devices, it does not seem away from the point, although the matter does not bear immediately upon Martin, to relate what took place, both because the virtues of Martin do to some extent appear in the transaction, and the incident, which was worthy of a miracle, will properly be put on record. With the view of furnishing a caution, should anything of a similar character subsequently occur. Chapter 23 A Case of Diabolic Deception There was a certain man, Clarus by name, a most noble youth, who afterwards became a priest, and who is now, through his happy departure from this world, numbered among the saints. "'he, leaving all others, betook himself to Martin, "'and in a short time became distinguished "'for the most exalted faith, "'and for all sorts of excellence. "'Now it came to pass that when he had erected "'an abode for himself not far from the monastery "'of the bishop, and many brethren were staying with him, "'a certain youth, Anatolius by name, "'having under the profession of a monk "'falsely assumed every appearance of humility and innocence,' came to him, and lived for some time on the common store along with the rest. Then, as time went on, Anatolius began to affirm that angels were in the habit of talking with him. As no one gave any credit to his words, he urged a number of the brethren to believe by certain signs. At length he went to such a length as to declare that angels passed between him and God. And now he wished that he should be regarded as one of the prophets. Clarus, however, could by no means be induced to believe. He then began to threaten Clarus with the anger of God and present afflictions, because he did not believe one of the saints. At last he is related to have burst for forth with the following declaration Behold, the Lord will this night give me a white robe out of heaven clothed in which I will dwell in the midst of you, and that will be to you a sign that I am the power of God, inasmuch as I have been presented with the garment of God. Then truly the expectation of all was highly raised by this profession. Accordingly, about the middle of the night, it was seen by the noise of people moving eagerly about, that the whole monastery in the place was excited, It might be seen, too, that the cell in which the young man referred to lived was glittering with numerous lights, and the whisperings of those moving about in it, as well as a kind of murmur of many voices could be heard. Then, on silence being secured, the youth coming forth calls one of the brethren, Sebacius by name, to himself, and shows him the robe in which he had been clothed he again, filled with amazement, gathers the rest together, and Clarus himself also runs up, and a light being obtained, they all carefully inspect the garment. Now it was of the utmost softness, of marvellous brightness, and of glittering purple, and yet no one could discover what was its nature, or of what sort of fleece it had been formed. However, when it was more minutely examined by the eyes or fingers, it seemed nothing else but a garment in the meantime Clarus urges upon the brethren to be earnest in prayer that the Lord would show them more clearly what it really was accordingly the rest of the night was spent in singing hymns and psalms but when day broke Clarus wished to take the young man by the hand and bring him to Martin being aware that Martin could not be deceived by any arts of the devil then indeed the miserable man began to resist and refuse and affirmed that he had been forbidden to show himself to Martin and when they compelled him to go against his will the garment vanished from among the hands of those who were conducting him wherefore who can doubt that this too was an illustration of the power of Martin so that the devil con- could no longer dissemble or conceal his own deception when it was to be submitted to the eyes of Martin. Chapter 24 Martin is tempted by the wiles of the devil. It was found again that about the same time there was a young man in Spain who having by many signs obtained for himself authority among the people was puffed up to such a pitch that he gave himself out as being Elijah. And when multitudes, had re- too, had read readily believed this, he went on to say that he was actually Christ, and he succeeded so well, even in this delusion, that a certain bishop named Rufus worshipped him as being the Lord. For so doing, we have seen this bishop, at a later date, deprived of his office many of the brethren have also informed me that at the same time one arose in the east who boasted that he was john we may infer from this that since false prophets of such a kind have appeared that the coming of antichrist is at hand for he is already practicing in these persons the mystery of iniquity and truly i think this point should not be passed over with what arts the devil about this very time tempted martin for on a certain day prayer having previously been offered and the fiend himself being surrounded by a purple light in order that he might the more easily deceive people by the brilliance of the splendor assumed clothed also in a royal robe and with a crown of precious stones and gold encircling his head his shoes too being inlaid with gold While he presented a tranquil countenance and a generally rejoicing aspect, so that no such thought as that he was the devil might be entertained, he stood by the side of Martin as he was praying in his cell. The saint, being dazzled by his first appearance, both preserved a long and a deep silence. This was first broken by the devil, who said, "'Acknowledge, Martin.' who it is that you behold, I am Christ, and being just about to descend to earth, I wished first to manifest myself to you. When Martin kept silence on hearing these words, and gave no answer whatever, the devil dared to repeat his audacious declaration. Martin, why do you hesitate to believe when you see, I am Christ? Then Martin, the spirit revealing the truth to him, that he might understand that it was the devil and not God, replied as follows. The Lord Jesus did not predict that he would come clothed in purple and with a glittering crown upon his head. I will not believe that Christ has come unless he appears with that appearance and form in which he suffered, and openly displaying the marks of his wounds upon the cross." On hearing these words, the devil vanished like smoke, and filled the cell with such a disgusting smell that he left unmistakable evidences of his real character. This event, as I have just related it, took place in the way in which I have stated, and my information regarding it was derived from the lips of Martin himself. Therefore, let no one regard it as fabulous." End of chapter 24 On the Life of St. Martin by Sulpicius Severus Part 4 Chapter 25 Intercourse of Sulpicius with Martin For, since I, having long heard accounts of his faith, life, and virtues, burned with a desire of knowing him, I undertook what was to me a pleasant journey for the purpose of seeing him. At the same time, because already my mind was inflamed with the desire of writing his life, I obtained my information partly from himself, in so far as I could venture to question him, and partly from those who had lived with him, or well knew the facts of the case. And at this time, it is scarcely credible with what humility and with what kindness he received me, while he cordially wished me joy, and rejoiced in the Lord that he had been held in such high estimation by me that I had undertaken a journey owing to my desire of seeing him. Unworthy me! In fact, I hardly dared acknowledge it, that he should have deigned to admit me to fellowship with him, He went so far as in person to present me with water to wash my hands, and at eventide he himself washed my feet, nor had I sufficient courage to resist or oppose his doing so. In fact, I felt so overcome by the authority he unconsciously exerted, that I deemed it unlawful to do anything but acquiesce in his arrangements his conversation with me was all directed to such points as the following that the allurements of this world and secular burdens were to be abandoned in order that we might be free and unencumbered in following the lord jesus and he pressed upon me as an admirable example in present circumstances the conduct of that distinguished man paulinus of whom i have made mention above martin declared of him that by parting with his great possessions and following Christ, as he did, he showed himself almost the only one who in these times had fully obeyed the precepts of the gospel. He insisted strongly that that was the man who should be made the object of our imitation, adding that the present age was fortunate in possessing such a model of faith and virtue. For Paulinus, being rich, and having many possessions, by selling them all, and giving them to the poor, according to the expressed will of the Lord, had had, he said, made possible by actual proof what appeared impossible of accomplishment. What power and dignity there was in Martin's words and conversation! How active he was, how practical! and how prompt and ready in solving questions connected with scripture. And because I know that many are incredulous on this point, for indeed I have met with persons who did not believe me when I related such things, I call to witness Jesus, and our common hope as Christians, that I never heard from any other lips than those of Martin such exhibitions of knowledge and genius or such specimens of good and pure speech. But yet, how insignificant is all such praise when compared with the virtues which he possessed? Still, it is remarkable that in a man who had no claim to be called learned, even this attribute was not wanting. Chapter 26. Words Cannot Describe the Excellences of Martin. But now my book must be brought to an end, and my discourse finished. This is not because all that was worthy of being said concerning Martin is now exhausted, but because I, just as sluggish poets grow less careful towards the end of their work, give over, being baffled by the immensity of the matter. For although his outward deeds could in some sort of way be set forth in words, no language I truly own. Ever be capable of describing his inner life and daily conduct, and his mind always bent upon the things of heaven. No one can adequately make known his perseverance and self mastery in abstinence and fasting, or his power in watchings and prayers, along with the nights as well as days which were spent by him, while not a moment was separated from the service of God, either for indulging in ease. Or engaging in business. But in fact he did not indulge either in food or sleep, except in so far as the necessities of nature required. I freely confess that if, as the saying is, Homer himself were to ascend from the shades below, he could not do justice to this subject in words. To such an extent did all excellences in surpass in Martin the possibility of being embodied in language. Never did a single hour or moment pass in which he was not either actually engaged in prayer, or, if it happened that he was occupied with something else, still he never let his mind loose from prayer. In truth, just as it is the custom of blacksmiths in the midst of their work to beat their own anvil as a sort of relief to the laborer, so Martin, even when he appeared to be doing something else, was still engaged in prayer. O truly blessed man, in whom there was no guile, judging no man, condemning no man, returning evil for evil to no man! He displayed, indeed, such marvelous patience in the endurance of injuries, that even when he was chief priest, bishop, He allowed himself to be wronged by the lowest clerics with impunity, nor did he either remove them from the office on account of such conduct, or, as far as in him lay, repel them from a place in his affection. CHAPTER Twenty Seven: WONDERFUL PIETY OF MARTIN No one ever saw him enraged, or excited, or lamenting, or laughing he was always one and the same. Displaying a kind of heavenly happiness in his countenance, he seemed to have passed the ordinary limits of human nature. Never was there any word on his lips but Christ, and never was there a feeling in his heart except piety, peace, and tender mercy. Frequently, too, he used to weep for the sins of those who showed themselves his revilers those who, as he led his retired and tranquil life, slandered him with poisoned tongue and a viper's mouth. And truly, we have had experience of some who were envious of his virtues and his life, who really hated in him what they did not see in themselves, and what they had not power to imitate. And, O wickedness, worthy of the deepest grief and groans— some of his calumniators, although very few, some of his maligners, I say, were reported to be no other than bishops. Here, however, it is not necessary to name any one, although a good many of these people are still venting their spleen against myself. I shall deem it sufficient that if any one of them reads this account, and perceives that he is himself pointed at, he may have the grace to blush. But if, on the other hand, he shows anger, he will, by that very fact, own that he is among those spoken of, though all the time, perhaps, I have been thinking of some other person. I shall, however, by no means feel ashamed if any persons of that sort include myself in their hatred, along with such a man as Martin. I am quite persuaded of this that the present little work will give pleasure to all truly good men. And I shall only say further, that if anyone read this narrative in an unbelieving spirit, he himself will fall into sin. I am conscious to myself that I have been induced by belief in the facts, and by the love of Christ, to write these things, and that in so doing I have set forth what is well known, and recorded what is true. And, as I trust, that man will have a reward prepared by God, not who shall read these things, but who shall believe them. End of the Life of St. Martin Postscript to the Life of St. Martin Letter One to Eusebius by Sulpicius Severus Against some envious assailants of Martin Yesterday a number of monks having come to me, it happened that amid endless fables and much tiresome discourse, mention was made of the little work which I published concerning the life of that saintly man, Martin and I was most happy to hear that it was being eagerly and carefully read by multitudes. In the meantime, however, I was told that a certain person, under the influence of an evil spirit, had asked why Martin, who was said to have raised the dead and to have rescued houses from the flames, had himself recently become subject to the power of fire, and thus been exposed to suffering of a dangerous character wretched man whoever he is that expressed himself thus we recognize his half-faithful talk in the words of the jews of old who reviled the lord when hanging upon the cross in the following terms he saved others he cannot save himself truly it is clear that whoever be the person referred to If he had lived in those times, he would have been quite prepared to speak against the Lord in these terms, inasmuch as he blasphemes a saint of the Lord after a like fashion. How, then, I ask you, whoever you are, how does the case stand? Was Martin really not possessed of power, and not a partaker of holiness, because he became exposed to danger from fire? Oh, you blessed man, and in all things like to the apostles, even in the reproaches which are thus heaped upon you. Assuredly, those Gentiles are reported to have entertained the same sort of thought respecting Paul also, when the viper had bitten him. For they said, This man must be a murderer, who, although saved from the sea, the fates do not permit to live. But he... SHAKING OFF THE VIPER INTO THE FIRE, SUFFERED NO HARM. They, THEY, HOWEVER, IMAGINED THAT HE WOULD SUDDENLY FALL DOWN AND SPEEDILY DIE. BUT WHEN THEY SAW THAT NO HARM befell HIM, CHANGING THEIR MINDS, THEY SAID THAT HE WAS A GOD. BUT, OH, YOU MOST MISERABLE OF MEN, YOU OUGHT EVEN FROM THAT EXAMPLE TO HAVE YOURSELF BEEN CONVINCED OF YOUR FALSITY so that if it had proved a stumbling-block to you that Martin appeared touched by the flame of fire, you should, on the other hand, have ascribed his being merely touched to his merits and power, because, though surrounded by flames, he did not perish. For acknowledge, you miserable man, acknowledge what you seem ignorant of, of. that almost all the saints have been more remarkable for the dangers they encountered even than for the virtues they displayed. I see indeed Peter, strong in faith, walking over the waves of the sea in opposition to the nature of things, and that he pressed the unstable waters with his footprints. But not on that account does the preacher of the Gentiles seem to me a smaller man whom the waves swallowed up, and after three days and three nights the water restored him, emerging from the deep. Nay, I am almost inclined to think that it was a greater thing to have lived in the deep than to have walked along the depths of the sea. But you foolish man, you had not, as I suppose, read these things, or, having read them, did not understand them. For... THE BLESSED EVANGELIST WOULD NOT HAVE RECORDED IN HOLY WRIT AN INCIDENT OF THAT KIND, UNDER DIVINE GUIDANCE, EXCEPT THAT FROM SUCH CASES THE HUMAN MIND MIGHT BE INSTRUCTED AS TO THE DANGERS CONNECTED WITH SHIPWRECKS AND SERPENTS. AND AS THE APOSTLE RELATES, WHO GLORIED IN HIS NAKEDNESS AND HUNGER AND PERILS FROM ROBBERS, ALL THESE THINGS ARE INDEED TO BE ENDURED IN COMMON by holy men, but that it has always been the chief excellence of the righteous in enduring and conquering such things, while amidst all their trials, being patient and ever unconquerable, they overcame them all the more courageously, the heavier the burden was that they had to bear. Hence, this event which is ascribed to the infirmity of Martin, is in reality full of dignity and glory, since indeed, being tried by a most dangerous calamity, he came forth a conqueror. But let no one wonder that the incident referred to was omitted by me in that treatise which I wrote concerning his life, since in that very work I openly acknowledged that I had not embraced all his acts, and that, for the very good reason that if I had been minded to narrate them all, I must have presented an enormous volume to my readers. And, indeed, his achievements were not of so limited a number that they could all be comprehended in a book. Nevertheless, I shall not leave this incident about which a question has arisen to remain in obscurity, but shall relate the whole affair as it occurred, LEST I SHOULD APPEAR PERCHANCE TO HAVE INTENTIONALLY PASSED OVER THAT WHICH MIGHT BE PUT FORWARD IN CALUMNIATION OF THE SAINTLY MAN. Martin, having about the middle of winter come to a certain parish, according to the usual custom of bishops, to visit the churches in the diocese, the clerics had prepared an abode for him in the private part of the church, and had kindled a large fire beneath the floor, which was decayed and very thin. They also erected for him a couch consisting of a large amount of straw. Then, when Martin betook himself to rest, he was annoyed with the softness of the too luxurious bed, inasmuch as he had been accustomed to lie on the bare ground with only a piece of sackcloth stretched over him. Accordingly. Influenced by the injury which had, as it were, been done to him, he threw aside the whole of the straw. Now it so happened that part of the straw which he had thus removed fell on the stove. He himself, in the meantime, rested, as was his wont, upon the bare ground, tired out by his long journey. About midnight. THE FIRE BURSTING UP THROUGH THE STOVE, WHICH, AS I HAVE SAID, WAS FAR FROM SOUND, LAID HOLD OF THE DRY STRAW. MARTIN, BEING WAKENED OUT OF SLEEP BY THIS UNEXPECTED OCCURRENCE, AND BEING PREVENTED BY THE PRESSING DANGER, BUT CHIEFLY, AS HE AFTERWARDS RELATED, BY THE SNARES AND URGENCY OF THE DEVIL, WAS LONGER THAN HE OUGHT TO HAVE BEEN IN HAVING RECOURSE TO THE AID OF PRAYER. For desiring to get outside, he struggled long and laboriously with the bolt by which he had secured the door. Before long he perceived that he was surrounded by a fearful conflagration, and the fire had even laid hold of the garment with which he was clothed. At length recovering his habitual conviction that his safety lay not in flight, but in the Lord, and seizing the shield of faith and prayer, COMMITTING HIMSELF ENTIRELY TO THE LORD, HE LAY DOWN IN THE MIDST OF THE FLAMES. THEN TRULY, THE FIRE HAVING BEEN REMOVED BY DIVINE INTERPOSITION, HE CONTINUED TO PRAY AMID A CIRCLE OF FLAMES WHICH DID HIM NO HARM. BUT THE MONKS, WHO WERE BEFORE THE DOOR, HEARING THE SOUND OF THE CRACKLING AND STRUGGLING FIRE, BROKE OPEN THE BARRED DOOR. And the fire being extinguished, they brought forth Martin from the midst of the flames, all the time supposing that he must before then have been burnt to ashes by a fire of so long continuance. Now, as the Lord is my witness, he himself related to me, and not without groans, confess that he was in this matter beguiled by the arts of the devil, in that when roused from sleep, he did not take the wise course of repelling the danger by means of faith and prayer. He also added that the flames raged around him all the time, that with a distempered mind he strove to throw open the door. But he declared that as soon as he again sought assistance from the cross and tried the weapons of prayer, the central flames gave way and he then felt them shedding a dewy refreshment over him, after having just experienced how cruelly they burned him. Considering all of which, let every one who reads this letter understand that Martin was indeed tried by that danger, but passed through it with true acceptance. Letter two. To the Deacon Aurelius Sulpicius has a vision of St. Martin. Sulpicius Severus, to Aurelius the deacon, sendeth greeting. After you had departed from me in the morning, I was sitting alone in my cell, and there occurred to me, as often happens, that hope of the future which I cherish, along with a weariness of the present world, a terror of judgment, a fear of punishment, and, as a consequence, indeed as the source from which the whole train of thought had flowed, a remembrance of my sins, which had rendered me worn and miserable. Then, after I had placed on my couch my limbs, fatigued with the anguish of my mind, sleep crept upon me, as frequently happens for melancholy and such sleep, as it is always somewhat light and uncertain in the morning hours, so it pervaded my members only in a hovering and doubtful manner. Thus it happens what does not occur in a different kind of slumber, that one can feel he is dreaming while almost awake. In these circumstances I seemed suddenly to see St. Martin appear to me in the character of a bishop clothed in a white robe, with a countenance as of fire, with eyes like stars, and with purple hair. He thus appeared to me with that aspect and form of body which I had known, so that I find it almost difficult to say what I mean. He could not be steadfastly beheld, though he could be clearly recognized. Well, Directing a gentle smile towards me, he held out in his right hand the small treatise which I had written concerning his life. I, for my part, embraced his sacred knees and begged for his blessing, according to custom. Upon this I felt his hand placed on my head with the sweetest touch, while amid the solemn words of benediction he repeated again and again the name of the cross— so familiar to his lips. Ere long, while my eyes were earnestly fixed upon him, and when I could not satisfy myself with gazing upon his countenance, he was suddenly taken away from me and raised on high. At last, having passed through the vast expanse of the air, while my straining eyes followed him ascending in a rapidly moving cloud, he could no longer be seen by me gazing after him. And not long after I saw the holy presbyter Clarus, a disciple of Martin's who had lately died, ascend in the same way as I had seen his master. I, impudently desiring to follow, while I aim at and strive after such lofty steps, suddenly wake up, and being roused from sleep I had begun to rejoice over the vision, when a boy, a servant in the family, enters to me with a countenance sadder than is usual with one who gives utterance to his grief in words. "'What,' I inquire of him, "'do you wish to tell me, with so melancholy an aspect?' Two monks,' he replied, "'have just been here from Tours, and they have brought word that Martin is dead.' I confess that I was cut to the heart, and bursting into tears I wept most abundantly. Nay, even now, as I write these things to you, brother, my tears are flowing, and I find no consolation for my all but unbearable sorrow. And I should wish you, when this news reaches you, to be a partaker in my grief, as you were a sharer with me in his love. Come, then i beg of you to me without delay that we may mourn in common him whom in common we love and yet i am well aware that such a man ought not to be mourned over to whom after his victory and triumph over the world there has now at last been given the crown of righteousness nevertheless I cannot so command myself as to keep from grieving. I have no doubt sent on before me one who will plead my cause in heaven, but I have at the same time lost my great source of consolation in this present life. Yet if grief would yield to the influence of reason, I certainly ought to rejoice, for he is now mingling among the apostles and prophets, and with all respect for the saints on high, be it said. He is second to no one in that assembly of the righteous, as I firmly hope, believe, and trust, being joined especially to those who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. He now follows the Lamb as his guide, free from all spot of defilement. For although the character of our times could not ensure him the honor of martyrdom, yet he will not remain destitute of the glory of a martyr, because both by vow and virtues he was alike able and willing to be a martyr. But if he had been permitted in the times of Nero and of Decius to take part in the struggle which then went on, I take to witness the God of heaven and earth that he would have freely submitted to the rack of torture, and readily surrendered himself to the flames. Yea, worthy of being compared to the illustrious Hebrew youths and the cir- amid the circling flames, and though in the very midst of the furnace he would have sung a hymn of the Lord. But if perchance it had pleased the persecutor to inflict upon him the punishment which Isaiah endured, he would never have shown himself inferior to the prophet, nor would have shrunk from having his members torn in pieces by saws and swords. And if impious fury had preferred to drive the blessed man over precipitous rocks or steep mountains, I maintain that, clinging to the testimony of the truth, he would willingly have fallen. But if, after the example of the teacher of the Gentiles, as indeed often happened, he had been included among other victims who were condemned to die by the sword. He would have been the foremost to urge on the executioner to his work, that he might obtain the crown of blood. And in truth, far from shrinking from a confession of the Lord, in the face of all those penalties and punishments which frequently prove too much for human infirmity, He would have stood so immovable as to have smiled with joy and gladness over the sufferings and torments he endured, whatever might have been the tortures inflicted upon him. But although he did in fact suffer none of these things, yet he fully attained to the honor of martyrdom without shedding his blood. For what agonies of human sufferings did he not endure in behalf of the hope of eternal life? in hunger, in watchings, in nakedness, in fastings, in reproachings of the malignant, in persecutions of the wicked, in care for the weak, in anxiety for those in danger. For who ever suffered but Martin suffered along with him? Who was made to stumble, and he burned not? Who perished, and he did not mourn deeply?' besides those daily struggles which he carried on against the various conflicts with human and spiritual wickedness, while invariably as he was assailed with diverse temptations, there prevailed in his case fortitude in conquering, patience in waiting, and placidity in enduring. O oh man truly indescribable in piety, mercy, love which daily grows cold even in holy men through the coldness of the world, but which in his case increased onwards to the end and endured from day to day. I, for my part, had the happiness of enjoying this grace in him even in an eminent degree, for he loved me in a special manner, though I was far from meriting such affection. And on the remembrance yet again my tears burst forth, while groans issue from the bottom of my heart? In what man shall I for the future find such repose for my spirit as I did in him? And in whose love shall I enjoy like consolation? Wretched being that I am, sunk in affliction, can I ever, if life be spared me, cease to lament that I have survived Martin? Shall there in future be to me any pleasure in life? Or any day or hour free from tears or can I ever my dearest brother make mention of him to you without lamentation and yet in conversing with you can I ever talk of any other subject than him but why do I stir you up to tears and lamentations so I now desire you to be comforted although I am unable to console myself he will not be absent from us. Believe me, he will never, never forsake us, but will be present with us as we discourse regarding him, and will be near to us as we pray. And the happiness which he has even today deigned to bestow, even that of seeing him in his glory, he will frequently in future afford. And he will protect us, as he did but a little while ago, with his unceasing benediction. Then again, according to the arrangement of the vision, he showed that heaven was open to those following him, and taught us to what we ought to follow him. He instructed us to what objects our hopes should be directed, and to what attainment our mind should be turned. Yet, my brother, what is to be done? For, as I am myself well aware, I shall never be able to climb that difficult ascent and penetrate into those blessed regions. To such a degree does a miserable burden press me down, and while I cannot, through the load of sin which overwhelms me, secure an ascent to heaven, the cruel pressure rather sinks me in my misery to the place of despair. Nevertheless, Hope remains, one last and solitary hope, that what I cannot obtain of myself I may at any rate be thought worthy of through the prayers of Martin on my behalf. But why, brother, should I longer occupy your time with a letter which has turned out so garrulous and thus delay you from coming to me? At the same time, my page being now filled can admit no more. This, however, was my object in prolonging my discourse to a somewhat undue extent, that since this letter conveys to you a message of sorrow, it might also furnish you with consolation, through my sort of friendly conversation with you. LETTER THREE TO BASULA, HIS MOTHER-IN-LAW HOW SAINT MARTIN PASSED FROM THIS LIFE TO LIFE ETERNAL. Sulpicius Severus, to Basula, his venerable parent, sendeth greeting. "'If it were lawful that parents should be summoned to court by their children, clearly I might drag you with a righteous thong before the tribunal of the praetor, on a charge of robbery and plunder. For why should I not complain of the injury which I have suffered at your hands? You have left me no little bit of writing at home, no book, not even a letter.' To such a degree do you play the thief with all such things, and publish them to the world. If I write anything in familiar style to a friend, if, as I amuse myself, I dictate anything with the wish at the same time that it should be kept private, all such things seem to reach you almost before they have been written or spoken. Surely you have my secretaries in your pay since through them any trifles I compose are made known to you. And yet I cannot be moved with anger against them if they really obey you, and have invaded my rights under the special influence of your generosity to them, and ever bear in mind that they belong to you rather than to me. Yes, you alone are the culprit, you alone are to blame— "'inasmuch as you both lay your snares for me "'and cajole them with your trickery, "'so that, without making any selection, "'pieces written familiarly or let out of hand without care "'are sent to you quite unelaborated and unpolished. "'For to say nothing about other writings, "'I beg to ask how that letter could reach you so speedily "'which I recently wrote to Aurelius the deacon.' For as I was situated at Toulouse, while you were dwelling at Treves, and were so far distant from your native land, owing to the anxiety felt on account of your son, what opportunity I should like to know, did you avail yourself of, to get hold of that familiar epistle? For I have received your letter in which you write that I ought, in that same epistle of which I made mention of the death of our master Martin, to have described the manner in which that saintly man left the world. As if, indeed, I had either given forth that epistle with the view of its being read by any other except him to whom it purported to be sent, or as if I were fated to undertake so great a work, as that all things which should be known respecting Martin are to be made public through me particularly as the writer. Therefore. If you desire to learn anything concerning the end of the saintly bishop, you should direct your inquiries rather to those who were present when his death occurred. I, for my part, have resolved to write nothing to you, lest you publish me everywhere. Nevertheless, if you pledge your word that you will read to no one what I send you, I shall satisfy your desire in a few words. Accordingly, I shall communicate to you the following particulars which are comprised within my own knowledge. I have to state, then, that Martin was aware of the period of his own death long before it occurred, and told the brethren that his departure from the body was at hand. In the meantime, a reason sprang up which led him to visit the church at Condate. For, as the clerics of that church were at variance among themselves, Martin, wishing to restore peace, although he well knew that the end of his own days was at hand, yet he did not shrink from undertaking the journey with such an object in view. He did in fact think that this would be an excellent crown to set upon his virtues, if he should leave behind him peace restored to a church. Thus, then having set out with that very numerous and holy crowd of disciples who usually accompanied him, he perceives in a river a number of waterfowl busy in capturing fishes, and notices that a voracious appetite was urging them on to frequent seizures of their prey. This, exclaimed he, is a picture of how the demons act. They lie in wait for the unwary and capture them before they know it, they devour their victims when taken, and they can never be satisfied with what they have de- devoured. Then Martin, with a miraculous power in his words, commands the birds to leave the pool in which they were swimming, and to betake themselves to dry and desert regions, using, with respect to those birds, that very same authority which, which, with which he had been accustomed to put demons to flight. Accordingly, gathering themselves together, all those birds formed a single body, and leaving the river, they made for the mountains and woods, to no small wonder of many who perceived such power in Martin that he could even rule the birds. Having then delayed some time in that village or church to which he had gone, and peace having been restored among the clerics, when he was now meditating a return to his monastery, "'he began suddenly to fail in bodily strength. "'And assembling the brethren, "'he told them that he was on the point of dissolution. "'Then, indeed, sorrow and grief took possession of all. "'And there was but one voice of them lamenting and saying, "'Why, dear father, will you leave us? "'Or to whom can you commit us in our desolation? "'Fierce wolves will speedily attack your flock, "'and who—' when the shepherd has been smitten, will save us from their bites. We know indeed that you desire to be with Christ, but your reward above is safe, and will not be diminished by being delayed. Rather, have pity upon us, whom you are leaving desolate. Then Martin, affected by these lamentations, as he was always in truth full of compassion, is said to have burst into tears. And turning to the Lord, he replied to those weeping round him, only in the following words, O Lord, if I am still necessary to thy people, I do not shrink from toil. Thy will be done. Thus, hovering as he did, between desire and love, he almost doubted which he preferred, for he neither wished to leave us nor to be longer separated from Christ. However, he placed no weight upon his own wishes, nor reserved anything to his own will, but committed himself wholly to the will and power of the Lord. Do you not think you hear him speaking in the following few words, which I repeat? Terrible indeed, Lord, is the struggle of bodily warfare. "'and surely it is now enough "'that I have continued the fight until now. "'But if you command me still "'to persevere in the same toil "'for the defense of thy flock, "'I do not refuse, "'nor do I plead against such an appointment "'my declining years. wholly given to thee, "'I will fulfill whatever duties "'thou dost assign me, "'and I will serve under thy standard "'as long as thou shalt prescribe.' Yea, although release is sweet to an old man after lengthened toil, yet my mind is a conqueror over my years, and I have no desire to yield to old age. But if now thou art merciful to my many years, good, O Lord, is thy will to me, and thou thyself wilt guard over those for whose safety I fear. O man, whom no language can describe, unconquered by toil and unconquerable even by death, who showed no personal preference for either alternative, and who neither feared to die nor refused to live. Accordingly, though he was for some days under the influence of a strong fever, he nevertheless did not abandon the work of God, Continuing in supplications and vigils through whole nights, he compelled his worn-out limbs to do service to his spirit as he lay on his glorious couch upon sackcloth and ashes. And when his disciples begged of him that at least he should allow some common straw to be placed beneath him, he replied, It is not fitting that a Christian should die except among ashes. "'and I have sinned if I leave you a different example. "'However, with his hands and eyes "'steadfastly directed towards heaven, "'he never released his unconquerable spirit from prayer. "'And on being asked by the priests "'who had then gathered round him "'to relieve his body a little by a change of side, "'he exclaimed, "'Allow me, dear brother, "'to fix my looks rather on heaven than on earth.' SO THAT MY SPIRIT, WHICH IS JUST ABOUT TO DEPART ON ITS OWN JOURNEY, MAY BE DIRECTED TOWARDS THE LORD. HAVING SPOKEN THESE WORDS, HE SAW THE DEVIL STANDING CLOSE AT HAND, AND EXCLAIMED, WHY DO YOU STAND HERE, THOU BLOODY MONSTER? THOU SHALT FIND NOTHING IN ME, THOU DEADLY ONE. ABRAHAM'S BOSOM IS ABOUT TO RECEIVE ME. AS HE UTTERED THESE WORDS, HIS SPIRIT FLED. And those who were there present have testified to us that they saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. His limbs, too, appeared white as snow, so that people exclaimed, Who would ever believe that man to be clothed in sackcloth? Or who would imagine that he was enveloped with ashes? For even then he presented such an appearance as if he had been manifested in the glory of the future resurrection and with the nature of a body which had been changed. But it is hardly credible what a multitude of human beings assembled at the performance of his funeral rites. The whole city poured forth to meet his body. All the inhabitants of the district and villages, along with many also from the neighboring cities, attended. Oh, how great was the grief of all! How deep the lamentations in particular of the sorrowing monks! "'They are said to have assembled on that day "'almost to the number of two thousand, "'the special glory of Martin, "'though through his example so numerous plants "'had sprung up for the service of the Lord. "'Undoubtedly the shepherd was then "'driving his own flocks before him, "'the pale crowds of that saintly multitude, "'bands arrayed in cloaks, "'either old men whose life-labor was finished or young soldiers who had just taken the oath of allegiance to Christ. Then, too, there was the choir of virgins, abstaining out of modesty from weeping. And with what holy joy did they conceal the fact of their affliction? No doubt faith would prevent the shedding of tears, yet affection forced out groans. For there was, as sacred an exultation over the glory which, to which he had attained, as there was a pious sorrow on account of his death. One would have been inclined to pardon those who wept, as well as to congratulate those who rejoiced, while each single person preferred that he himself should grieve, but that another should rejoice. Thus then, this multitude, singing hymns of heaven, attended the body of the sainted man onwards to the place of sepulture, Let there be compared with this spectacle, I will not say the worldly pomp of a funeral, but even of a triumph. And what can be reckoned more similar to the obsequies of Martin? Let your worldly great men lead before their chariots, captives, with their hands bound behind their backs. Those accompanied the body of Martin, who, under his guidance, had overcome the world! LET MADNESS HONOR THESE EARTHLY WARRIORS WITH THE UNITED PRAISES OF NATIONS. MARTIN IS PRAISED WITH THE DIVINE PSALMS. MARTIN IS HONORED IN HEAVENLY HYMNS. THOSE WORLDLY MEN, AFTER THEIR TRIUMPHS HERE ARE OVER, SHALL BE THRUST INTO CRUEL Tartarus, WHILE MARTIN IS JOYFULLY RECEIVED INTO THE BOSOM OF ABRAHAM. MARTIN, POOR AND INSIGNIFICANT ON EARTH, has a rich entrance granted him into heaven. From that blessed region, as I trust, he looks upon me as my guardian while I am writing these things, and upon you while you read them. End of the Life of St. Martin's Postscript